So I want to read, I want to pick up the story. Beth ended, uh, this was great. It seems like something's missing from creation. And there is because she didn't finish the story. So I want to finish the story. Uh, So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 26. If you want to open your pew Bibles, your apps, your personal Bible, it's really easy to find. It's like one of the first pages. So um, I'll give you just a second to get to Genesis 1. And I'm going to start in verse 26. So God has made all the places... Right, the sky, the seas, the land, he's filled those places with stuff, as Beth has said. But like she said, there's, there's something missing. So the story continues in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. So this month, we are going to be developing a theology of stewardship. Now, that is a loaded word. And for those of you that are familiar with it, you probably just got a little nervous. Maybe you clutched your wallet a little tighter. Maybe you rolled your eyes a little bit because what you heard me say was, we're going to talk about you giving all your money to the church. It's not what I said. So maybe the best place to start is by replacing the word stewardship completely. Because for many of us, that word is just loaded with a lot of baggage. You see, what we mean by a theology of stewardship, yes, money and our resources are a part of that for sure. But what we really mean is a theology of partnership, partnership with God, his image bearers living obedient to his purposes for us from the moment of creation until he returns and calls us home. So this morning, I just want to see if I can make that case, and then we're going to continue this discussion throughout the month of January. And to do that, I want to start with grammar. If I didn't lose you with stewardship, I probably lost you with grammar, but don't worry, it's not that bad. I want to show you, this is what the rabbis call the grammar of creation. It's a simple sentence. The creator created creation. It's a complete sentence that uses one word. One word that plays the part of the subject, the verb, and the direct object. There's an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. He says it like this. He says, the grammar of creation affirms that God has a powerful purpose for his creation. That creation is not a careless, casual, or accidental matter. So what's the purpose of creation? And what is our place in it? 
There's another pastor and professor, uh, one of my professors actually, his name is Daryl Johnson. Uh, he argues that this grammar of creation is the key to understand, it's understanding deeper things of reality, to the meaning of life, what it means for us to live in relationship with God. And he makes a really profound statement. He says, I submit to you that if our societies knew this story and took it seriously, that we would experience purpose, profound healing, and redemptive transformation. And I love the part of that where he says, knew this story and took it seriously. Because I would argue that the church, that we know this story, we know this creation story, many of us have been hearing it our whole lives, but are we taking it seriously? Do we really understand what it's saying? Because if we do, look at what we will experience. And that's the goal, right? I mean, isn't that why we're here? Yes, to know God, to glorify him, but also to find purpose. The hope for healing, for transformation, for us as broken individuals, for us as a broken society, for all of us that are living in a broken world. Now, if we're going to find purpose and healing and transformation, we will, of course, find ourselves at the foot of the cross in the empty tomb. That's where we know the story is going, but that's not where the story begins. To understand this, we have to start with the grammar of creation, with Genesis 1 and 2. The creator creates creation. So you have homework today. We don't have time to read all of Genesis 1 and 2, so you need to go home and read it for yourself. There will be a little quiz next week. (laughs) Just kidding. Didn't lose you with stewardship or grammar. Now I lost you with a quiz, right? (laughs) But go home and read it. Read those first two chapters and keep like a scratch paper, a journal, something. Have something with you so that you can write down your questions because I guarantee you, you're going to have a lot of them. You're going to find that even the way those two chapters tell the same story is very different. And you're going to be asking a lot of why type questions. So keep something with you so you can write those questions down. But this morning, if I can, I just want to share three simple observations about the creation story, about our place in it. From my own questions, from my own wrestling with this, but also uh, from the work of an author and a professor, but not a professor of theology. Instead, I want to introduce you to a professor of business, ethics, and law. Um, His name is Jeff Van Duzer. He was a provost at Seattle Pacific University. He was the dean of their school of business and economics. Uh, Before that, he was a professor of business, ethics, and business law. And that's all really impressive. But he really loves Jesus. He is seriously biblically literate. He has some profound theological ideas. He is really focused on our partnership with God and his mission here on earth. And he has a passion to share that good news with the world around him. There's some good guys in the academic field, y'all. And he's one of them. Uh, He wrote a book. Uh, This book is called Why Business Matters to God. And if you know anything about me, you know that typically this is not the kind of book that will capture my attention, much less that I would read. (laughs) But this book is incredible because it's a deep theological work that's easily understandable, and it's rooted in the narrative of Scripture. He takes the narrative arc of Scripture, creation, fall, the redemptive work of Christ, and the hope of new creation, and from that he develops an ethic and a theology for business. And it's really inspiring to me. So I really recommend the book. Roland and I have been talking about maybe uh, doing a little series, a class on this later on in the year. Uh, But I thought today I'd just share a couple of his initial observations. 
And one of his first observations, he argues that from these first two chapters, we know that the material world matters to God. In Genesis 1 and 2, if you are familiar with it, or if not, when you go home and read it later today, what did God make? Does it tell us that he made ideas or concepts? Does it describe how he created the spiritual realm? No. It tells us that he made stuff, physical things, the atoms and the molecules that become animate and inanimate objects alike. He made the water and everything that swims in it, the sky and the things that fly and hang above us. He made the dirt and the rocks and everything that creeps and crawls and grows in them. See, if the grammar of creation reminds us that God has a powerful purpose for his creation, that creation is not careless or casual or accidental, then matter matters to God. God cares about the stuff he made. The second thing that's clear from scripture from these first two chapters is that we have been put here to be faithful stewards over all that matter. To be faithful stewards over everything that matters to God. Now, you're probably familiar with the greatest commandment, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But do you know the first command in all of Scripture? The very first command God gives. I already read it today. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In the next chapter, in chapter 2... The humans are even given the privilege of naming the animals. They're allowed to develop classifications, systems, order for God's creation. In chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over it. Classify it. Order it. Figure it out. See how it all works. Work it. Take care of it. If you look up the word steward, you're going to find a whole bunch of verbs that are used to define it. A person who is responsible for. Someone who supervises and keeps order. Someone who manages and looks after. Now, can you see that this is not a conversation that begins with your wallet? This is about your purpose. Like, I believe this is about the meaning of life. This is about the role that God gave to all of us as we live in the midst of the creation the creator created. Now Genesis 1 and 2 makes something else really clear. It is very clear that this creation still belongs to God. Nowhere in the story is ownership of creation transferred over to us. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. God's name is still on the title. We are the stewards. We are caretakers of God's creation. So I think a really reasonable question to ask at this point is just my favorite question. Why? <laughs> Why did God do this? Why did God make all this incredible stuff and then leave it in our hands? Why make us the stewards? 
Because honestly, it, it seems like kind of a dumb thing to do. <laughs> I don't think that's what I would have done. Like, just look at us. We're a mess. And if you continue on and read Genesis chapter 3, you're going to see why. Like, we can hardly care for ourselves some days. Much less manage and order and be responsible for every created thing. Much less agree on how to do that together. The Bible itself asks the same question in the Psalms. From Psalm 8, listen to this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. The Bible is acknowledging it's a fair question. But thankfully the writer in the same psalm continues to give us an incredible and profound answer. He says, you have made them, humans, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You have put everything under their feet. All the flocks, the herds, the animals in the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We got a kitten for Christmas. I don't know if I told somebody about this. We never had a kitten in our house. It's the cutest little thing in the world. I found it online, not Jennifer. I found it online. Uh, but we got this kitten. We actually hid it from Anna for 11 days in our house. And it was a surprise. It was awesome. We totally pulled it off. <laughs> like one of the greatest feats in human history, I think. <laughs> a kitten in our closet for 11 days. And this kitten is really sweet. He's not mean, not rude, really playful. But for him, playful means attack. And it's playful. He's not being mean. But he doesn't quite know how to play without tearing my hand apart. <laughs> I'm trying to tell him. God told me my job is to tell you what to do, and I'm telling you stop it. <laughs> but he's not listening quite yet. We're still working through it. All of this leads us to a third observation about this story, one that I'm still working on. We've seen that what God made matters to God. That God chose us to be stewards of what matters to him. But it also tells us that we are capable of being good stewards of creation because we were made in his image. That's the key. That we are image bearers of God. That's why it's possible for us to do the work that he created us to do. Now, people have argued for centuries about what this actually means. Does this mean that we physically look like God? Or is it more like a personality, something about our nature? Is it an inner psychology? And it's a really challenging question. I'm sure there's incredibly complicated answers. But I think if we just turn to the beginning of Scripture, it's not impossible to answer, at least to some level. Genesis 1.27 tells us we were made in the image of God. That means that everything that we need to know to understand about what it means to be made in the image of God, it's going to come from that story. It's going to come from the story around it. We're going to find out what it means to be made in the image of God in Genesis 1 and 2. And those chapters tell us a couple things. They tell us first that being made in the image of God means that we were made to work. We were workers. Y'all, work is not a result of sin. 
Work was always part of the plan. I will never understand. When, when I was growing up, I had an image that the Garden of Eden was just this paradise where the man and the woman walked around and said, I want a pineapple. And poof, there was a pineapple. <laughs> or like all they did was go sit on the beach and drink from coconuts. Like, that sounds awesome. But it's not biblical. <laughs> That's not what they did. Maybe on the seventh day they got to rest a little bit. But every other day is full of work. Y'all, it's not till the end of the creation story that God himself does anything other than work. It's not till the very end that God himself rests. From the first verse, God is active, working, creating, hovering, speaking, separating, forming, gathering, naming, organizing, categorizing, then reflecting on all the work he did at the end of the day and calling it what? Good. Genesis 2 will go on and give us more detail. It explains that this is actually really messy work. And we've talked about this before. When the Lord God formed the man, he formed him out of the dust of the ground. In order to make the first human, God got his hands dirty. If God is a worker, then being made in the image of God must mean, at the very least, that we were made to work. To gather, to name, to organize, to categorize, even to create. Not in the same way that God creates out of nothing, but to be a part of God's creative work. We get to be a part of creating more of us. We get to create systems and organizations. We get to create art and music, practical things and beautiful things. We're even invited then to reflect on the work that we do. And when we do, the hope is that we would find that it's good work, that it suits God's good purposes, that it's good for humanity. That it's good for creation itself. So I think we can know from these first two chapters, being made in the image of God means that we were made to work. It also means that we were made to live and do that work together in community. In the first three verses of the Bible, we find God. We find the spirit of God hovering over the chaos in the deep. And then we find the word of God that calls creation into existence. As Christians, we recognize that as the Trinity. In the first three verses of the Bible, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. The very word of God here on earth. The Gospel of John spends the entire first chapter making that point. And when you go home later on today, and when you read Genesis 1, notice in verse 26, God said, Let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness, so that they may rule. As Christians, we can't see this as anything other than a clear description of the Trinity, the community of God. If God Himself works and lives in community, Father, Spirit, and Son bound together by love, then to be His image bearer means, at the very least, that we were created to do our work and to live in community so that we can rule and be good stewards of everything God has made. That professor, Jeff Van Duzer, he says it this way. He says, when humans engage in creative, meaningful work that grows out of a relationship and gives back to the community, they become more deeply human. Now, that is a beautiful quote. And in many ways, if you can put that back up really quick, Noah. 
in many ways, that quote is the thesis for the book that I showed you earlier, Why Business Matters to God. He believes that is the purpose not just for nonprofits. That's the purpose for all business, to pull people together to do meaningful work that provides goods and services for the benefit of the community, for the good of everything that God has made. There's a profound verse in Genesis 2 that speaks about this idea of humanity living in community from the other perspective, what it would be like if we were alone, if we were in isolation. In chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. He looks at the garden and he sees this man that he has made standing in that garden by himself. This is before sin, before disobedience. This is before Genesis 3. God sees a human standing alone in the garden and says it's not good. And he does something about it. And the first thing he does is he brings the animals to the man and the man names them. But there's no real counterpart in the animals for man. So what does he make? What does he give the human? So that the human will not be alone. Another human. To be made in the image of God, y'all, I'm sure that it means many things. Things that we probably can't understand. But using Genesis 1 and 2 as our guide, we can understand that at the very least, it means that like God, we were meant to work. And like God, we were meant to live and to work together in community. So today, just introducing these three quick observations about the creation story. And I think they help us understand our purpose to trust that even in this lost and broken world, that healing and transformation is possible. Like we've seen that matter matters to God. God cares about what he made. We've seen that we were created to be faithful stewards over the matter that matters to God. And we've seen that we are capable. We are up to the task because we were made in God's image. Let me read you one more quote from this business professor. He says, he says, God made the initial capital investment. God made the initial capital investment. God's a capitalist. (laughs) I'm not going there. I'm just, that's a joke. Okay. God made the initial capital investment. He richly endowed the earth with resources. The humans were the initial managers called to creatively organize, to manage the resources and to enhance the productivity of the garden in a sustainable way. This kind of creative work is not just a gift given to some artist or design engineers. It is inherent in the very meaning of being human. Now, of course, as I have mentioned a couple times, we know that unfortunately this story continues on past Genesis 2. And we know that in Genesis 3, that image of God in us is broken. It's fractured in some way because of disobedience and distrust. And it made a huge mess of everything. And that's the mess that we're living in the midst of today. And the problem was that being stewards of what God made, it wasn't enough. We wanted the title transferred. We wanted the property in our name. We wanted ownership of a creation that we didn't create. And it broke everything. And we need to think about how tragic and honestly how arrogant that is of us. If the grammar of creation tells us that the creator created creation, I want you to think about this for a minute. 
That means there's only two categories for all things. A thing is either uncreated or it's created. And we know there's only one uncreated thing, and that's God himself, right? So what is everything else? If it is not God, what is it? It's part of creation. So take a second and reflect on that. Think about that. Like, do you see what that means? Do you see the privilege and responsibility that was given to us? The scope of that privilege and responsibility? What are we here to care for? Everything. Everything that has been made. The skies and the seas, the lands, the plants, the talents that we've been given. The treasures that we have and each other. Somebody asked me in a Bible study the other day, what about space? What about the potential that we would go visit or occupy some other planets or the moon? And look, I'm all for it. To me, it sounds really exciting. I've told Jennifer, there's enough explorer in me that if there's a ship headed for Jupiter or Saturn, I'm on it. Like, I want to see it. That stuff is really interesting to me. So I don't have any problem with exploration. That's why we're here today, thanks to explorers and people willing to take a risk. But I really hope that if we go there, that there are some theologians and some faithful followers of Jesus who were on that mission. Because whatever it is, the moon, the planets, if it's a created thing, it is part of the mission too. I told the earlier services, um, uh, Elon Musk is uh, a little strange, but he's doing some incredible things. And one of those things is he believes in the next five to 10 years that we'll put people on Mars. That's awesome. Earlier this year, he sent the first all civilian crew into space, his company did. That's awesome. I was listening to a podcast. He was being interviewed. Now, if you know anything about Elon Musk, he is not a Christian. He's not religious at all, doesn't believe in God. And he has said that he doesn't pray. It's a waste of time. In this interview, the host was asking about sending these civilians into space and really beginning this mission of exploring the solar system. And he said, as we were waiting for that rocket to launch, all the work had been done. And I prayed. He said, for the first time in my life, I prayed. Because of the lives that we were responsible for in that rocket, and because of the weight of the mission that we were about to undertake. I think that's incredible. I think that through his work, God is taking somebody who has no relationship with him, and he's drawn him near. He's helping them see the scope of what God has called him to do. And I think that's beautiful. And I pray that that would continue, that relationship would grow. So we know about Genesis 3, we know what that did to the story, but listen, we come here to hear good news. Because we don't just live on the other side of Eden, we live on the other side of the cross. We live on the other side of the empty tomb. We live in the place where pain and suffering and death has been defeated. We are told by the New Testament that those who are in Christ, we live as a new creation. That that image of God in us that's broken is being restored so that we can fulfill the mission that God gave us. In the meantime, until he does that to completion, until he calls us home, God's up to something. And we're invited to be a part of it. How incredible is that? We're invited to be a part of the work that God is doing, to invest ourselves in it, to roll up our sleeves and get to work. 
So this is where our theology of stewardship begins. It begins in creation. And we're going to continue to talk about this in the weeks to come. And our hope is that we're going to see how stewardship is about a lot more than just this yearly guilt trip to give more money to the church. That's not what it's about. It's an invitation to be partners with God. To be workers and managers in the only industry that has eternal prospects. The question is, is God's plan, is God's business model, is God's industry worth your investment? Is it worth your time? Is it worth your talent? And yes, is it worth your treasure? Is it? Yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> it is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful as we look out at creation. It's, it's incredible, and we hardly understand it. Uh, but you have given us minds and creativity and curiosity to try to figure it out. So God, as we do that, we pray that we would do that as good stewards. That the things that you gave us to be gifts, to be used by us, to bless us, that we would do that well. That we would work as you intend us to work. To further your kingdom purposes. To bring people together in meaningful work. To provide for the things that our communities need. And to care for everything that you have made just as you care for it. So God, as a church, we pray that you would equip us and teach us over the coming weeks how to do that well. How to do that not just to build up a facility or a building or an institution, but to be a people who are investing and working for your kingdom here in Kingwood, Numble, and Atascacita, and Porter, Houston, Texas, America, and around the world, everywhere you send us. Teach us and guide us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Amen.